Episode 4 of ICO 41, Weekly In-Depth Analysis of Initial Coin Offerings. Welcome to episode four of ICO 41. My name is Owen Scott, and I'm your podcast host. This podcast focuses deeply on a single ICO each week and presumes some knowledge of the basics of blockchain technology. What's different about this podcast is that we read the white papers, we investigate the background of the team. If we can, we spend some time communicating with them, and we report to you in detail. As always, this podcast is not intended as investment advice nor as information to lead to any particular action whatsoever. Our aim is to inform, not to suggest. Okay, for this week, in preparation for the ICO that we are going to discuss, I think it would be good to cover some things that might not be completely obvious to some of our listeners. There are four major types of blockchains, public, permissioned, private, and something called consortium. The differences of these have mostly to do with who can participate in the network and to what level they can participate. So on a blockchain, one of the most important actors, so to speak, is a member that is running what is known as a full node. Now this usually means it's basically a computer that's running software that downloads a full copy of the blockchain and validates blocks of transactions. This function is called mining in a proof-of-work method of consensus that Bitcoin uses and some other coins use, where a complex mathematical problem is attacked and solved. And in other systems, such as proof-of-stake, it's called forging. And that's when a block is awarded based on an algorithm that takes into account the amount of stake that a node has in the token. In question, it's forged, so to speak. In a public blockchain, like Bitcoin or currently like Ethereum, anyone can run a node and anyone can validate blocks. There is no approval mechanism and there's really no governance in that sense. There's also a degree of an anonymity in a public blockchain. The nodes are not necessarily known and they're certainly not validated as individuals or companies or computers. In a permissioned blockchain, those that are allowed to operate a node, and in some cases even those that are the client users of the network, must have permission to do so. And what they can do in a permissioned blockchain is largely decided on specific levels of permissions. And in almost in all cases, there's some sort of validation that has to occur so that the organization or the person running the node can be identified and held accountable if necessary. Very often, too, in permission blockchains, there's a level of commitment that is expected. And with nodes that honor their commitment are rewarded, and those that do not honor their commitment of uptime or whatever else are punished in some way. In this type of blockchain, almost anyone can join and validate transactions, but they can only do so with permission, and depending on what function they provide, they undergo an appropriate validation. That's a permissioned blockchain. There's also private blockchains. 
purely private blockchains are operated and controlled generally by one entity, an organization. You see this type of blockchain used by banks and organizations like banks that really want to use some of the aspects of blockchain technology that are attractive in terms of efficiency and so forth, but they can't accept the more public aspects or, or unknown aspects of the actors in the blockchain. And so they need to exert complete control over any aspect of the blockchain. So needless to say, this type of model has a healthy number of skeptics in the cryptocurrency world. And blockchain communities, for what you might consider political reasons, uh, believe that this is sort of a not a pure blockchain, or at least it's not a, not a valid method of running a true blockchain. And finally, there's another type, and this is really a type of permission to blockchain, but it's, it's the consortium blockchain. It's a little bit of a hybrid in the sense that, in this case, there's a group of validated, trusted nodes that are allowed to operate the network. It's usually a limited group, but it's not a single private organization. And there is a sort of democratic structure normally where there's some voting mechanism. So this consortium is a group of different actors, different organizations, different nodes that interact and govern the use of the blockchain, a lot of aspects of it. Very often, the type of blockchain that is chosen with respect to these four blockchains for a given project, it really depends on things like trust, security, or outside regulatory forces. Of these four types, I would say that the most complicated is probably the consortium blockchain, because it generally requires some sort of hierarchy to manage, as well as a, a kind of sophisticated mechanism to ensure that all the actors are treated fairly and it can work together and would somehow discourage or even somehow disallow factionism. So if you're using this structure well, if you think about it, a consortium-based uh, blockchain could go a long way to solving some of the more trickier problems that you see in certain vertical markets. And that's what we're going to see in this week's ICO. So I just wanted to give that little primer of the different types and sort of an explanation of what a consortium blockchain is in preparation for this week. All right, listeners, this week's upcoming initial coin offering is... Health Nexus by Simply Vital Health. Now, this is one of those ambitious ICO projects that intends to take on a large, difficult, and complex problem. In this case, it's healthcare. Now, it should be understood that healthcare was one of the first things that early champions of blockchain technology thought of when they began to realize that blockchain technology could be used for more than just digital currency transactions. In fact, there's, there's even a provisional patent filed with the U.S. Patent Office in May of 2014 that outlines the concept of a blockchain consisting of healthcare records as a chronicle of a person's healthcare throughout their lives, validated through a proof of work mechanism based on the same consensus 
algorithm used by Bitcoin. And needless to say, I, I'm greatly simplifying this patent, which is long and complex and very detailed. But the fact remains that this has been on the minds of blockchain architects for a few years now. But even though it has been on the minds of some probably very talented blockchain architects, it's only recently that we see any actual blockchain applications appearing in healthcare. It's still very, very early in this space. Now, it so happens that Simply Vital Health happens to be one of those companies that has introduced a working application for healthcare based on blockchain technology. It's functional now, and there's clients operating on it. It's named Connecting Care, and it's, it's a modest introduction to the application of blockchain technology in healthcare. And Simply Vital Health has recently announced a token sale to help fund a much, much larger solution to a wide range of issues that face healthcare today. And that's what this week's ICO is about, the upcoming token sale for Simply Vital Health for the Health Nexus platform. Now, these larger solutions that their current platform can't possibly solve, uh, it would require a lot more funding and work, are the following. There is a good deal of pressure on traditional revenue streams in the healthcare industry from a shift from fee-based services to value-based care. This is actually has the potential to transform the industry in some respects, and the providers are working on ways to sort of figure it out and remain profitable. There's a difficulty in providing value-based care in fact, and that's due to the data that is siloed, inaccessible, not transparent to providers, um, as well as severe challenges in providing timely and accurate communication between providers. There's been studies that show that billions of dollars are lost each year in healthcare due to lack of communication. Another point is the monopolization of healthcare data. Where just a few data aggregators hold massive amounts of data and sell it at exorbitant rates to whomever will pay them for it. And finally, the current method of payments and insurance reimbursements and things like bundled payments are terribly inefficient and outdated. These problems are intended to be addressed by the Health Nexus platform offered by Simply Vital Health. The big problem with applying blockchain technology to healthcare is the sensitivity of the data, as well as the regulatory environment about that data. Laws such as HIPAA, and even in places like California, where there's even more stringent laws than HIPAA, like the CMIA, which is so stringent that it even overrides some of the HIPAA provisions to provide more privacy penalties for breach of data. As a result of this, uh, applying blockchain technology to healthcare requires a little bit more thought to the underlying architecture and approach of just using a distributed system to store data and to track and allow transactions. As we'll see when we examine the white paper and the network, uh, this 
necessarily requires a slightly more complex approach in the application of blockchain. And of course, we'll be using our standard 14-point analysis methodology for this podcast. Those points consist of the concept, the company, the team, the white paper, the roadmap, the token, the network and the technology, the pre-sale, any offering details, a little bit about SEC compliance, the business viability itself, the community response and anticipation, any possible issues, a little bit of devil's advocacy, and finally a takeaway. Let's just start with the concept. I'm actually not sure you could come up with a more challenging use case for the application of the blockchain than healthcare. It's maybe one of the most broken systems we have in place, at least in the United States. I would argue that there's probably no perfect model anywhere in the world. Wherever you go, the problems that Simply Vital Health has identified are the same. There's a lack of provider coordination, high fees for data, if there is any data. Some developing nations, of course, there is none. Inefficient payments mechanisms. As an example, our family lived in Mexico for a year. And even in that case, we witnessed firsthand the complexity of obtaining health care in a semi-socialized country like Mexico where citizens we saw often took matters into their own hands in order to work within what you have to call a, an inefficient system. So the inefficiencies and the difficulty in delivering health care are not confined just to the United States, although we all know that the United States healthcare system is definitely broken and definitely in need of help. So the ideas and the concepts of using the blockchain are definitely valid in healthcare. This is especially true for the access to data. So if data that's collected about a patient is added to an immutable ledger and signed by an appropriate actor, then that actor can unlock that data for the use of a requester and that actor might be rewarded directly. And all of this without the involvement of a data provider. This is really only possible on a distributed system that's accessible through something like smart contracts and private keys and encryption to maintain that level of security and also that level of identification and control by someone who's not a data aggregator. Also, What's interesting about healthcare now is this whole thing about shared savings programs. And that's created by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And what has developed because of these programs uh, are sort of a pretty complicated system of what are known as accountable care organizations or ACOs. Those are groups of providers, doctors, hospitals, and other providers, nurses, who work together to demonstrate that money was saved during the care of a given patient. So now, if that can be demonstrated, if that can be shown that money was saved when helping a patient, the ACOs actually receive a share of the savings. But it's a little bit complicated in the way that it's determined. There's various payment systems. There's a number of criteria that determine all the details of this. It's convoluted and it's a little bit complicated. And what Simply Vital Health is pointing out in their white paper is that this system could be made much more efficient 
with the use of smart contracts that run on a blockchain. And I don't doubt that. These kind of solutions, in fact, that sort of overly complex payment structure based on various criteria are precisely what the founders of Ethereum had in mind when they invented the concept of a smart contract that was programmable and that could run in conjunction with a token on the blockchain. So there are some really important concepts that are definitely addressable with blockchain technology. So it's not sort of a misplaced concept by any means. Let's cover the team and the company. Now, in a lot of cases, uh, in these ICOs, we have found, this is now the fourth episode, we've seen this, there's really no company to examine because it looks like everybody just sort of got together in the last you know, month or something. In this case, this is a rare exception. Uh, Simply Vital Health is actually an established company with products, with services, with customers. A year ago, the company won best in class at the Distributed Health Hackathon for building and demonstrating a blockchain solution within 24 hours. They have a release product, it's called Connecting Care, it's running on a blockchain, and they have customers. The team to support the token sale is a little bit larger than the team that that's listed on the main website. So if you go and check this out, you'll need to go to a couple different websites to find the full team. Uh, the core team for the token sale have some uh, pretty impressive backgrounds and they show a good deal of passion that seems to be born of experience in the healthcare industry. Uh, the CEO, for instance, spent two years working at Yale New Haven Health, and she was a hospital administrator. The CTO spent two years at Capital One as a lead developer for blockchain applications. This is a pretty young industry, and that's a pretty decent credential. Uh, about six months ago, he pointed out in an article on Medium that the use of blockchain technology and the distributed nature of it, along with encryption, could actually have mitigated the results of certain attacks like WannaCry, for instance. And if you remember, WannaCry severely uh, hit the healthcare sector with respect to hospitals and things. Uh, the director of growth and operations uh, came from the Yale School of Management and worked at Goldman Sachs. And the advisory team on the token sale uh, team has a number of people who are you know, well-versed, obviously, in blockchain technologies with a lot of experience. Now this white paper, uh, there's a number of reasons why this white paper stood out to me. I, one is that it was clearly written by people who had gone through software development cycles. I mean, if there's one thing that I've learned in the last 10 years in managing the construction of software applications is that nothing in the beginning is truly cast in stone, especially in a nascent technology like this one, the blockchain. I mean... The approach that I found in the white pair that I liked was that the authors discussed a range of possibilities to solve a given problem and admitted that several factors could sway them in one way or another and that ultimately it would be decided as the project unfolded. And the choices that they provided all made sense and, and the reasons they gave made sense to me. So it was just nice to see a white paper that didn't act like everything was preordained, completely and 100% cast in stone, and we know exactly the way things are going to turn out. Because you know what? You really don't. And I, it was refreshing to see that in, in a white paper. Um, 
One of the more interesting aspects of this white paper is what we were talking about before a little bit, and there's this entire concept of governance. And remember, this is healthcare, and there is the HIPAA Act, and there are several other, many other actual um, acts that, that govern, you know, the use of data and interactions in the healthcare industry. And so something like Ethereum or Bitcoin, that kind of public, purely 100% public blockchain technology, it just isn't realistic for the healthcare industry. The regulation alone, uh, you know, it just, in fact, even more than that, it's more of the adoption. Even if you could prove somehow that, that oh no, this is completely HIPAA compliant, you still have to get organizations to buy into this. You still have to get them to use it. And if they just don't believe that there's governance and they don't believe that governance can be had through purely programmatic means, and that would be hard to show, you got to have some level of governance that they're familiar with. And this white paper does a, a good job of that. When you're talking about data that is potentially life or death, it goes a little bit beyond encryption. It's also availability. So you need some commitment on the part of the people who are operating these data stores and operating this network. There has to be a level of accountability. There has to be a level of commitment. And that is really only going to be achieved through a mechanism that is permissioned and governed. So. I would say that uh, Simply Vital Health has, has settled upon, you know, what I think is a good model. Uh, it's run, it's a permission blockchain run by a consortium of organizations. And they're called executives, uh, executive IDs in the white paper. And there's a finite number, especially in the beginning, they're, they're initially selected. And it's sort of based on their level of commitment to the project and who, what they can offer the network, how they will be able to serve the network in the beginning. And it'll be a focused consortium that has the best interest of the network in mind. But what's interesting and unique and what I like about it is that there's room for growth. So new members can be added to this consortium through a process that involves invitation voting and validation. So new members could apply to existing members. They could propose what they would have to offer. The candidate would be voted upon by the executive IDs, by the consortium. And then ultimately, uh, if they were voted in as members, then they would earn the right to participate in some fashion. And of course, before they could participate, they would be validated. And they would be validated, you know, and the obvious type of validation would be something for HIPAA compliance, for instance. And, uh, you know, I had a discussion on, on, uh, on Discord uh, with the CEO, and I thought of an idea of just sort of how, how this would work in, in my world, you know, with a, with a hosting company. You've got a hosting company who would apply to become a member of the consortium. Uh, they would be valid they would be voted in perhaps if they if what they had to offer would be of value to the network and then they would be validated and then of course they would need 
it's a proof of stake algorithm. So it's it's not proof of work; it's proof of stake, which means that uh, they would need a store of of currency, you know, of, of, of the uh, token. And so they would then make an investment and that would allow them to participate and offer their data stores at a price on the marketplace. And, uh, in the, in the architecture of, of the white paper, there were, um, there were, there was offsite off chain, uh, data stores. And, and I think that's important because, We'll go into the technology in detail a little bit later about how they're going to actually store this data, but there's definitely going to be room for some off-chain, you know, more traditional type data stores. And of course, there would be gatekeepers. Um, there would be special nodes called gatekeepers that would allow access to that data. And of course, the hosting company would be given those kind of executive IDs to allow that. And of course, before they could do any of this, they would be validated in terms of compliance with regulations like HIPAA. It should be understood that this model that we're discussing is not a private blockchain, not a purely private blockchain. First of all, there's a group of people or organizations that are not specifically in the same organization. So it is a consortium, so it's somewhat public that way. But it's also more of a hybrid in the sense that the public blockchain will remain open, actually, for the public to use. And it's the nodes that are running the network and validating the data that are permissioned. So you should understand this is not a private blockchain. It's not a purely public blockchain. It's a permissioned blockchain running and governed by a consortium. One item that stood out in the white paper for me, just one more, uh, was just this potential to allow patients themselves to actually have a say and even conceivably profit from the data that's collected about them. It's a fascinating idea. Uh, and actually, it's fascinating to me because there has been quite a bit of controversy about this. Uh, there wasn't that long ago that I, I read a book uh, about the HeLa cell in uh, medical research and the implications that that sort of led to um, by the family of the original donor of the HeLa cell and who owns our data. What, can, what does a patient have? What kind of rights do patients have with respect to medical information and medical data? So if this is implemented, it's definitely going to uh, lead to some very interesting outcomes, I'm sure. The, uh, the token and the technology. Uh, the token is uh, HLTH, known as HealthCash. And it's primarily going to be used for transactions, such as bundled payments and, you know, hospitals buying data storage and things like that. Um, there's going to be another type of token. Uh, this was confirmed to me with a chat with the CEO, where there's another kind of token for the executive IDs. Uh, and that token will provide the authority for those types of actors to perform certain functions, take on certain responsibilities tied to their governance obligations. Data is going to be stored on the blockchain and off the blockchain. For the on-chain data storage, uh, they're using a distributed hash table. That's a DHT. And that's, that's an interesting structure. Uh, it allows for very quick lookups. It's, it's very uh, efficient. It uses a hash and a key. In fact, it's, it's actually used by the BitTorrent network. Um, it's very fast. It's, very, it's uh, very reliable in terms of you know, finding the right information quickly. As mentioned in the white paper, it was selected by the team also because 
Using this model, you can store identity. And you can allow specific sets of data to be tied to a specific requester or validator or a patient, for example. Uh, and miners can be identified and validated periodically uh, using a DHT because that, that identity uh, can be stored that way. And that's very important in a permissioned blockchain. And that way, uh, you know, sort of validation for compliance can be sort of automatically tested. A smart contract will be the engine for uh, a marketplace of data, and that'll allow permissioned access to off-chain data storage. And I'm imagining that this is how it might be possible for patients, for instance, to obtain some compensation for that data. In fact, if you look at the white paper, the general process for storing and accessing data is actually well thought out, and it's presented in, in detail with process flows and so forth. Uh, there's a marketplace, there's price discovery, there's negotiated data storage rates, uh, there's criteria such as distance configured into the calculations. There's a, there's a type of uh, DHT, distributed hash table, called Kademlia, and the Kademlia application of DHT takes into consideration routing distance between nodes, actually. It, it's very efficient and it's interesting. It reminds me a little bit of the way that certain internet routing protocols work in terms of routing and efficiency. Uh, let's talk about the, the roadmap. The roadmap is, I, I like the roadmap in the sense that it's, it's fairly realistic. It's, uh, it's phased. It's a phased approach. And uh, their philosophy appears to be and this was actually borne out um, in interviews, earlier interviews, a year or so ago um, with the CEO, you know, where she, she said if there's, she was asked, is there anything you would have to, to offer uh, young entrepreneurs? And she said, take it in small steps, <laughs> you know, do it in small steps. Uh, it's, it's, it's better to get a, a, a nice low-hanging fruit win under your belt so you can build on that than it is to try to take on the world all at once. And I think that's reflected pretty well in the timeline. The pre-sale. The pre-sale starts, uh, it's listed on the website as September 25th, but I, in a chat session, uh, we discovered that it was actually uh, September 26th. So it'll be coming out on the 26th, the pre-sale. There's actually not a lot of information about the pre-sale. The team has said that actually the price in Ether will be set shortly before the pre-sale because of the fluctuation in the market. So the details of that will be forthcoming. The best thing to do to find out this information, though, um, is to sign up for the presale just by visiting tokensale.simplyvitalhealth.com. There's no commitment, as far as I could tell. You just put in your email address, and you're going to get notified uh, through email. And that's what was confirmed to me uh, by the CTO uh, on uh, Telegram when I was putting this together. Uh, he said that uh, we would be notified um, about the presale through email. I was told on Telegram that the pre-sale should be open to U.S. investors and there'll be an announcement about the general token sale uh, that comes out October 31st. Uh, here are the details, actually, about the, uh, about the token sale itself. Uh, it opens October 31st, 2017, and it ends November 30th, so it's, it's one month. The hard cap of the sale is $40 million USD. And I noticed that the ICO is actually being engineered and uh, sort of advised by tokenmarket.net. And this in and of itself is actually a positive because that is one company that is known for vetting 
ICOs quite carefully before agreeing to work with them. And they have an impressive track record with helping launch very successful ICOs like StoreJ, Monaco, and Civic. Uh, let's talk about SEC compliance. With respect to the SEC, uh, and just for those people who are just tuning in and don't know what this Howey test is, it's a, it's a test that refers to a Supreme Court case which decided whether an investment should be considered a security or not. This actually has some pretty profound implications for the ICO industry, particularly those open to U.S. investors. So if an offering could be considered a security by the SEC, then the company issuing the offering would have to register it with the SEC as such. This is a really long-term, expensive, prohibitively expensive in some cases, process, which ICOs generally need to avoid at all costs. Now, in this white paper, I don't see the aggressive stance uh, that is designed to sort of show everybody right up in their face that anybody who's reading this is, this will pass the Howey test explicitly. Like we've seen some of the other ICOs, you see that. Uh, but when I read carefully the white paper, I've read it a couple of times, the use of the token is entirely utilitarian. There's one small bullet point around the token description that mentions that it could be used as a way to fund projects, but there's no indication whatsoever that the token would be used as a, a store of um, speculative value. And there's certainly no nothing that would suggest that there would be a return on the investment as a security. So... I didn't see anything. I applied the Howey test informally. Obviously, I'm not the SEC, but uh, it it looked uh, to me like there was nothing to worry about in terms of this being considered a security by the SEC. Let's talk about business viability. I can see some use cases with respect to the efficiency of payments, for instance, and these savings programs. I've read uh, the Center for Medical Medicaid Services, and I've read these savings programs. I've read the criteria by which the payments go out, and it's definitely complicated. It could definitely use some help. I also see a valid marketplace when, when you're talking about the value of medical data and how it could be offered as an alternative to these monopolistic organizations like LexisNexis, for instance. It's interesting, you know, if you look at some of the ICOs that are working around data storage and the economics of data storage, and it, it's having some trouble attracting a business model in the sense that the people who are running these data storage nodes are not actually making a lot of money. And that's because of the value of the data. It's just data. When you're talking about health data, health care data, their value is higher. And for that reason, I think the business viability around the data storage marketplace for this particular application has a better chance than a pure distributed data storage marketplace. I think that the viability of the business model uh, in this particular project will actually be very much dependent on the initial body of governors, the governance, those executive IDs initially. If 
Simply Vital Health manages to attract a wide-ranging set of governing executive stakeholders. As the initial set of selected board of governors, so to speak, then I think the project has a, a high chance of success. Because the weight and the commitment that these kinds of actors would be able to bring to the platform, and as well bringing in new members, you know, as outlined in the white paper, using that, that voting mechanism, should allow a, a strong community, should really foster the growth of a really strong community. So I think the initial set of executives um, really matters in terms of this project. Let's talk about the reaction from the community. The reaction of the community, when I say community, I'm talking about the, the cryptocurrency blockchain community. It's been pretty much universally positive. Um, I should mention, though, that there's not a lot of reaction one way or another. In other words, there's not a great deal of volume. There's really, for instance, I don't think I could find a subreddit. I didn't see a subreddit. The Bitcoin talk announcement there's an announcement um, page in Bitcoin Talk. It doesn't have a lot of conversation. It doesn't have a lot of reaction. But the reaction it does have is universally positive. Um, and I don't see a bunch of newbie accounts coming in, shills or anything, just pumping it up. These are legitimate comments, it looks like, from established members of the community. People seem to be responding to the white paper positively. My questions, personally, uh, to the team on Telegram and Discord were answered very quickly. Immediately, in fact, by the CEO and then backed up and clarified uh, by the CTO within minutes. It's a little bit early. There's, there's not much code on GitHub. Uh, the CTO explained that they're cleaning up the code and testing. and They'll be uploading it pretty soon. It is fairly early in terms of these ICOs with the GitHub repository. I mean, it's more than a month before the uh, ICO is actually going to be launched. Let's talk about a couple of gotchas. Uh, gotchas, devil's advocacy I don't see any real problems with the ideas or the project or the white paper or the team. The only gotcha that I can really think of is, is the healthcare system itself. Uh, the sheer amount of regulation around this industry and data storage and privacy is, is bound to lead to complexity. And it can't be solved quickly and easily no matter what the technology is. So the final takeaway uh, for this ICO is that yes, the vision is large, uh, the team seems to have a phased approach, which we like, and the right kind of blockchain structure that will be amenable to the healthcare industry. And the very fact that they have one of the very few operational blockchain applications in healthcare that's working, uh, ultimately, we believe that there's a good chance that this project, over time, will gain traction. Also, one of the things that jumps out at us with this team is the passion. That's clear in the interviews, that's clear in the responses, the level of excitement that they themselves bring, their youth, for instance. Uh, they seem to have what it takes in terms of attitude to approach this and to sort of sink their teeth into it and not let it go. And so we wish them well and we'll check in with them from time to time for sure on this podcast. And that's it for ICO 41 this week. Thanks very much. One last thing that I wanted to mention this week is that uh, we are planning to launch uh, Blockchain 41, and that's a blow-by-blow, from-the-beginning education in Bitcoin, Ethereum, and blockchain. It's coming. 
We're sorry for the delay. We promise it's coming. Uh, it's just a lot of work to get these out, and we are working on it, and we will get that launched as soon as we humanly can. Thanks very much, and have a good week. <laughs> <laughs>